Several years ago, I was having a conversation with uh, Jerry Rushford. In fact, it was the year before Jerry's last year. I was keynoting that year. And uh, as we were at a reception that evening, Jerry said, Well, Chris, you know, um, you know, next year's my last year. I said, Yes, Jerry, I'm fully aware of that. And he said, uh, Well, uh, you know, it may not be any more keynotes uh, for you because it's, it's my last year, next year. And I said, yes, Jerry, I'm fully aware. I'm keenly aware. And it's almost like he, he, he was afraid he wasn't communicating because he said, you know, Chris, there could arise a Pharaoh who knows not Chris. <laughs> Which, of course, the joke was on uh, Jerry because I went to graduate school with uh, King Tut Cope. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, there was only one A in any of Jack Lewis's classes, and uh, it was pretty obvious after just a couple of sessions that uh, one Mike Cope was going to get the A, and the rest of us were all searching after the B's and the C's. When I first came to uh, Pepperdine several years ago, I came by myself. In fact, came uh, by myself for three or four times. And, uh, and so I'm so blessed to be able to have my family with me this evening. I have my three children, uh, one of my grandsons, and uh, my wife. And, and it's kind of like when Jacob went off. You know, when Jacob went off to uh, the other country to get his wife, uh, he left with him just himself. And, and when he came back, well, he came back with an entourage. I mean, he came back with uh, uh, two, two maidens and uh, lots of flocks and and some foreign gods, and 11, 11 uh, children, and uh, two wives, and, and that's the part that just throws me right there. You know, I know there are a lot of things about antiquity that just, you know, it's a different era, but that whole marrying more than one woman, just, I mean, what were those guys thinking? That just doesn't, I just doesn't compute to me. I don't know about you, but the best I can do is remember one birthday, one anniversary and Mother's Day, and the idea of trying to remember multiple birthdays. And, and of course, it'd just be one Mother's Day, but then you got multiple birthdays, and then, and then the whole love language. How are you going to keep all the love languages separated? You know, was Leah acts of service, and was Rachel words of confirmation? And how would you even do all of that? My wife says, I can't even remember one love language. Years ago, she was off doing something and she was coming back. And, and so for her birthday, I decided acts of service. This is what Jesus would do, WWJD. This is what Jesus would do. And so I got one of those uh, uh, things from the uh, grocery store and I cleaned the carpets. Our carpets were nasty. I cleaned the carpets. I cleaned them in this room and that room. And she came home and she just kind of walked by. And I was standing there like Vanna White. I was just, you know... <laughs> Here, right here, sweetie. I cleaned the carpets, and, and she just walked right on by. I've tried to shame her. I have tried to shame her and suggested that perhaps, you know, that uh, Jesus would not be all that pleased with uh, gifts because that's her love language, gifts. You know, Jesus would be a service person. And, and I've said, that, you know, maybe that reflects a certain shallowness of soul to which she says, well, that may be true, but I'll be cute. So... Um, <laughs> And the whole business about uh, even thinking about love languages, multiple wives, it just reflects that it's really hard to go back in the past and, uh, and take a story and then, well, what sticks? David and Goliath, what sticks? 
And what do you just discard? It's, it's a hermeneutical issue. And then with the story of David and Goliath, you've got the other issue, which is, uh, well, it's such a familiar story. And the temptation for the, the preacher, the teacher, is to try to pull a rabbit out of a hat so that folks can leave going, oh, I never even thought about that. He, he redefined cubit for me or something like that. And oh, wow, you know, it... But oftentimes with a story like David and Goliath, it's not. Let's find something you've never noticed before and let's just impress ourselves. With a story like David and Goliath, it may just be a simple reminder. For me, uh, certainly, the problem is not in finding something new. Uh, it's the failure to live up to what I already know. David and Goliath. Goliath was... As they say in the South, a big old rascal. He's huge. Depending whether you go with four cubits, six cubits, he's over six feet, he's over nine feet. If he can wear an outer garment, a, a, a chain of mail that weighed from 125 to 200 pounds, he's a pretty big guy. If he's got a, a, a sword with, a, with an end on it that weighs from 20 to 25 pounds. Uh, he's not just a, a small fella. He's a big guy. If he's got someone who is walking out before him to carry the shield. And so he comes down each day down into the valley and he issues this, uh, this challenge. Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You want a piece of me? That's what he's saying. And Saul's a big guy. And what's Saul doing? Well, he's over there with everybody else. He is dismayed and he is afraid. And then David shows up. He's been out tending the flocks and killing lions and bears and, you know, the usual kinds of things. And so his daddy sends him to the front. Go, go, go check on your uh, brothers and, and here's some cheese and, and, and come back and, and bring me a report from the battlefront. And so David does that and he's walking along. And, and as he's walking along, he just comes upon some folks talking. This is in verse 25. And the Israelites said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will greatly enrich the man who kills him and will give him his daughter and make his family free in Israel. Maybe the biggest blessing. You don't have to go battle. You don't have to give your sons. You don't have to pay taxes. You, friend, are free. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Very interesting. The first words out of his mouth, coupled with the last words out of his mouth, the last words out of his mouth, basically he puts a contract out on someone. The first words out of David's mouth are, what? 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 Uh, say that again. What did you say would be done for the guy who fights this? The first words out of David's mouth are self-serving. And it almost feels bad to even semi-agree with uh, Eugene Peterson. From a purely historical point of view, David was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. 
Can we, we can't, he said, I didn't say that, I'm just quoting, it's what Eugene Peterson said, I mean, come on, he did a translation of the Bible, so I mean, he's, he's the man. And, and it, it seems like it's almost wrong to admit that there's parts of David that you don't like. Can you do that? I mean, is that okay? That just seems wrong to, to, to have aspects of David with which you disagree. I mean, to, to not like David is, is, is like to say, well, Mother Teresa, she's, she's okay. I mean, she's a little moody for, I, you know, I like my saints a little more upbeat. I mean, have you read her memoirs? They are so depressing. To say that there's parts of David that you don't like, I mean, that's like saying uh, the I have a dream speech. Well, yeah, but, I mean, it's so repetitious. I mean, how many times does he say? I mean, seriously, it's in there like five or six times, and, and he just went off cuff. I mean, he didn't even stick to the script. I mean, to say that you don't like David, it's like to say, well, you know, Jeff Walling, I mean, he's a he's a good preacher. He's a he's a he's a great preacher. But what? He's like five eight. I mean, <laughs> now Joel Osteen. Now there's a guy. I mean, he's tall. I mean, there's something about saying that that to even hint that there's something about David that you don't like. And that's the crazy and the wonderful part about it is right here in the same verse. What's in it for me? And then David does something that nobody else has done. David brings up God for the first time. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. Nobody else is talking about God. Saul's not talking about God. The armies aren't talking about God. But David is. Then he has a run-in with his brother. His brother basically says, you know what, you are a punk, you are a jerk, and you have always been a jerk. And David says... Well, really, David doesn't say much of it. David, what? What? And he just turns. And, and, then, and then this word about how he's willing to fight the uh, giant eventually gets to the ears of Saul. And so David goes in, and he sounds very cocky. And David says, I'll fight him. Sure, I'll fight him. Just let me at him. Let me at him. And again, you get this same sense. Verse 36 your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of the Philistine. And that's the crazy thing. With all the stuff about David that we do not like, that we find distasteful, David believes what he said. This is how I kill those animals. You think he's just a cocky punk. And frankly, he may be a cocky punk, but he's a cocky punk who believes in a big God. And here's the difference between David and Saul. Saul says, go and may the Lord be with you. 
and may the Lord be with you. I mean, is there anybody in the room who believes that he believed that? He didn't believe that. He's just using religious language. That's like when you tell somebody, oh, we'll be praying for you. (laughs) Yeah, you might, but I'm going to go find somebody else who I really think believes in prayer to pray for me because I think you're just talking. And that is the difference between David and Saul. Saul doesn't believe, and David does. Well, take my armor. I can't walk around in that. I'm not used to that. And so David runs forward, and he goes down. He goes down into the valley. And when he gets down into the valley, he, uh, he grabs some stones. I had a guy give me some years ago, right here in my Ziploc bag. Five smooth pebbles from Brook Elah. He probably got them out of his backyard, but he... <laughs> so you know what this means, right? This means I'm in possession of stolen antiquities right here. I've had them in my drawer. I've been waiting for this night for years. I've had them in my drawer for, uh, for years. Five smooth stones from Brook Eli. It's a classic, classic mismatch. We know how this is going to end. When we watch a March Madness, uh, those uh, uh, underserved souls who get interested in things like that, while the rest of you are out, having uh, Bible studies and, you know, <laughs> showing Jewel Miller film strips and uh, <laughs> Okay, this, was, this is not in my notes, and, and it's probably not true, but it really is a funny story. So supposedly, uh, and, this, and, and the only people who laugh are the people who are like 50 plus. If you're laughing under, underneath 50, you're just being polite. So supposedly, supposedly, Jewel Miller's son, who was a math teacher, went to uh, teach at Lipscomb years ago, and he was lecturing on the very first day, and he said, and now, would you uh, please turn in your books to page 103? Ding! <laughs> See, yeah. I'm, yeah. That's why it wasn't in my notes, because it, sometimes you should just trust your notes, actually. So... So anyway, so some of you, you know, you're, you know, you're too spiritual, and then the rest of us are watching March Madness, and then the problem when you're watching an event like that is, who do you pull for? Well, if you're really into sports, you've got all sorts of rules about why you pull for certain people. And so, you, you, I mean, you've got your favorite team, or, the, or you've got the team that you hate, and so you always pull against them. Or you pull for teams from your team's conference. Or you pull against the traditional rivals. And then sometimes it gets complicated. We had a boy at our church who committed to play for a team that I've committed to hate all my life. And, I mean, it put me in a bad spot. I didn't want to tell, I didn't want to tell the boy he's probably going to hell because he's going to that other school. And so, you know, faithfully I kept my mouth shut. And then he transferred. And then he decided to go to another school. And so he went to Clemson. And Well, okay, so you can pull for Clemson because they're in another conference. And, and their, their coach has, you know, really high morals. And, and you like him unless you're from Alabama and you hate him. And so, so anyway, you've got all of these rules. And then, and then sometimes you can pull against a team just because you don't like the coach. even though they, And so, for example, my daddy... Uh, forever would pull against any team coached by Tommy Tuberville 
because daddy grew up an Ole Miss fan. Coach Tuberville left Ole Miss and he went to Auburn. My daddy would pull against Auburn if the devil was playing Auburn. Daddy would pull for the devil. And I tried, even when he changed to other schools that Daddy didn't even give a rip about. He was pulling against them. And, and I said to him one time, I said, Daddy, you know, Coach Tuberville, I mean, like, he's a member of the church. And you know what that means. He's a member of the Church of Christ. And my daddy, God bless him, said, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, you got to respect commitment like that. And, so anyway, so for all of you, the, the people who, you know, were doing Bible studies and watching opera and all that, so when, when March Madness comes, here's all you got to do. Just look at the numbers beside them. And so if a team is 2 and the other team is 15, you pull for 15. You pull for the underdog. It's a classic underdog, except it's, it's how it gets flipped and even though we know what's coming, it's still just the coolest thing. Goliath doesn't know it, but he winds up taking uh, a sword to a gunfight. Remember that scene in one of those Indiana Jones movies where the... Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. 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 You know Indiana Jones, you don't know Jewel Miller. That's kind of... <laughs> just breaks my heart. <laughs> okay. So I don't have to finish the story. You remember the scene where the guy comes out and he pulls that sword out and he just pulls a gun and, and of course, see, we think it's going to be the reverse and and Malcolm Gladwell makes a, a, a good case that, that it was a mismatch, that there's no way uh, infantry can face artillery. That uh, supposedly back then they could take a stone, sometimes the size of a tennis ball, and they could fling that stone in a sling in less than a second. And it was a mismatch, but that's not how you read the story. Because, you see, we know that it's not because David was nimble. It's not because any of that other stuff. It's, um, it's because of God. That, in fact, on the, on the screen you'll see all the times that he refers to God. David knew. David knew. King David was a remarkable, remarkable person. It's the first, a lot of guys say, it's the first true portrait of a human being. But man alive was he jacked up. His was, uh, his was a broken, a broken hallelujah. But he was brave. Man alive, he was brave. And courage, bravery is something that is in desperate demand today in our churches, in our culture, uh, in our world, in a world and a culture in which it seems like it's increasingly just arrayed against us. We surely got to have folks who are willing to take a stand. And I understand that taking a stand differs from one person to the next. 
I mean, I get that, and we can certainly disagree at times about what it means to take a stand, but we can't disagree that courage is necessary. One of the few times, maybe the only time, that I lose sleep in my job, it's not politics. It's not the politics of church. I've, I've learned how to manage that pretty well. We can have something go, go awry and about one day, and I'm, I'm over it. I've just kind of learned, just kind of go with the flow. And so it's not the politics. And certainly when someone uh, breaks your heart and they do something they shouldn't and they hurt people, I mean, that, that stings, that leaves a mark. But the only time that I lose sleep is when I know that I'm stepping back instead of stepping forward. And, and what I tell myself sometimes when I retreat from what I know needs to be said, I will say, well, you know, I don't want them to misunderstand me. That's a lie. No, I'm afraid they will understand me. And then they're going to like me. And that's the difference between Saul and David. Saul was a politician running for approval. And David, at least on this occasion, David did that which was right. I was listening to our governor in Tennessee a year before last. A really fine governor, Republican, great guy. And... <laughs> Seriously, that's just, that hurts too. I mean, <laughs> well, he was, and it's part of the story, okay? So, all right, so here's the deal. I'm going to shame you now. This Republican, this Republican governor was trying to expand the Medicaid role. And all of his fellow Republican legislators sandbagged him. And he failed miserably. Two times he failed. And so I was listening to him speak one day at a breakfast. And he had just suffered the second defeat. And there wasn't a whiny tone in his voice. He was simply saying, you know, we did this and we're going to try again. It really was masterful. And then he said something that caught my ear. He said, it's like, oh my goodness. He said, you know, being governor is a lot like being a pastor. And he said, uh, because you can't please everybody. Oh, my goodness. How much flipping time have I wasted trying to please everybody? For some, I truly do believe, for some of my preaching brothers and sisters, the whole week for you is to hear this one word. You got to have some courage. You got to put on your big boy pants. You got to put on your big girl pants. Let me disabuse you of something. You cannot please everyone. And if you ever thought you could please everyone, you were simply fooling yourself. And when you try to appease people, when you're trying to get everybody to work together, sometimes that is simply an excuse for cowardice. 
Man alive, I don't know what all I want my children to say when they put me in the ground, but I sure hope they say that Daddy would say the truth. Amen. We're so afraid sometimes. I'm so, I'm so afraid sometimes to step in and say whatever it is that needs to be said. And of course, it's easy for me to say that right now because I'm on sabbatical. I don't have to preach for eight weeks. <laughs> My people aren't going to live stream. They're not watching this. They've already... I'm golden, baby. I mean, I can go back, slip back in, preach a sermon on love. It's going to be great. So, so David was... He was remarkable. He was. But he's not God. And to read David's story only through the lens of a flawed person is to miss the major story. As Randy said last night, when David is at his best, it's, it's when he's acting out of humility. When David's at his worst, it's when he's acting out of pride. How was David able to do whatever it is that David was able to do? It was because of the God he served. He would have been dead before he even met Goliath because that bear would have torn him apart. David at his best was a David who had been filled with the power of the Lord God Almighty. And you need to be sure that you look and that you see the God behind the story of David. You know, sometimes we meet people that just make us love God more. I mean, we're impressed with them, but we see them, and they ju it's just something about their character. It's something about the way they live their lives, and it makes you believe even more. We had uh, one of those people at our place, Miss Judy. Uh, Judy was born with uh, a mild form of a CP. It caused her to have a, a few uh, mental deficits, not many, and some physical maladies as well. She kind of stooped over, and, and her back was bent pretty much, and, and her, she had some difficulty talking, and you couldn't always understand her. Well, that's not true. You could after you'd been around her a bit. Really high-pitched voice. She taught our uh, uh, two- and three-year-olds for 30 years. She'd get down on the floor. She would play with them. The wheels on the bus go round and round. She'd teach those lessons. And the interesting thing about it all, that two generations of children who have come through our place, not one child has ever said anything about Miss Judy being different. Never. Just something about her. She showed up at everything. She came to church more than preachers came to church. I mean, she was there all the time. She would show up when we were getting chainsaws out to clean up people's yards because of a tornado. She would show up on a staff work day when we're cleaning up everything around the building. Judy would show up. She would come on every VBS prep day. Judy did everything. She was... She was a woman without guile, oh, and which made her somewhat naive. One time her life group uh, wanted to kind of surprise her. It was Christmas time, and so they got some of those antlers, you know, that you put on the front of your car. I, I'm sure y'all don't do that in California. But uh, so put these little antlers on the front of her car. And then they waited and, to see what she would do. And so she left the meeting, and, and then she came storming back in, and she said that she had called the police. Well, Judy, why did you call the police? Somebody stole my car. 
Judy, your car's out there. Your car's got those antlers. And she said, my car don't have antlers. <laughs> you got me there, Judy. <laughs> and, uh, and so she had a massive heart attack at 50, bypass surgery, second heart attack at 60. And uh, at 70, the heart's just giving out. Fluids collecting on her lungs. And, uh, and she said, I'm, I'm done. Except that's the difference. Judy would have never said, I'm done. She said, I'm ready to go to heaven. And she was done. And Seeing Judy made you love Jesus. What would happen if we all lived that way? What would happen if we truly, as, as the younger generation said, if we truly did lean into what God had in store for us, if we really did trust God the way that we're supposed to trust God, if we really were brave with the bravery that God would give us, what would happen if we lived our lives like that all the time? Well, number one, you won't be as good as Judy. You know, you only get so many Judys. But what could happen if you did? So, I suggest, uh, I suggest you head on down into whatever valley it is you got and pick you some stones. I'd say about five will do. And let's just see what God will do through you. Blessings to you.